3rd November with me, Ian Welsh. I was in Amsterdam this week at Innovation Forum's Sustainable Landscapes and Commodities Conference. There's plenty of content from that to come in the podcast over the coming weeks. Coming up shortly is some insight from CEO of the Roundtable on Sustainable Palm Oil, Joseph de Cruz. Plus, ahead of the conference, and to coincide with the launch of a new report about how companies can act to develop a more sustainable approach to land use at scale, I spoke with Tropical Forest Alliance CEO Jack Hurd and PepsiCo's Senior Director for Positive Agriculture, Capabilities and Forest Risk, Emily Kunun. All that's to come. First, though, is a regular roundup of some sustainable business news, this week with B. Stevenson. With scientists warning that the window to avoid 1.5 degrees centigrade of global warming is fast closing, more than 360 financial institutions and large multinationals are rallying businesses in high-carbon sectors such as steel, chemicals and logistics to establish science-based targets. A call-to-action campaign coordinated by CDP and supported by financial and corporate giants with a combined worth of over $33 trillion, including Legal & General, Bayer, BMW and L'Oreal, is asking over 2,100 specific companies to commit to the SPTI's 1.5 degree centigrade trajectory. The targeted companies, including FedEx, Rio Tinto, Nippon Steel and Dow Chemical, generate a cumulative annual emission equivalent to that of the US, the UK and Japan combined, according to the CDP. The call to action requests that they align their emission reductions efforts with the SPTI targets, covering both direct and indirect emissions. The call emphasizes the urgent need for drastic emission reductions and highlights the growing role of financial institutions in pressuring companies to decarbonize. The move follows the We Mean Business Coalition's corporate climate stop take, revealing that despite setting net zero targets for 2050 or earlier, a significant proportion of business leaders across high emissions sectors do not anticipate ending fossil fuel use before 2050. The new Tetra Pak Index 2023 report has revealed that a growing proportion of consumers are willing to adjust their eating habits to protect the planet. The report is based on an Ipsos survey conducted in 10 countries across the world. Over half of respondents, or 54%, express willingness to change their diet to benefit the planet, while 70% emphasise the importance of healthy products that do no harm to the planet. The survey also indicates that health is a motivator for 56% of people to adopt flexitarian, pescatarian, vegetarian or vegan diets, with 36% citing environmental concerns as their primary driver for dietary changes. A notable 62% respondents believe that technology plays a pivotal role in steering a more sustainable future. Tetra Pak's president and CEO, Adolfo Uribe, has identified these findings as a reflection of ongoing efforts to decarbonize the food industry and create more resilient and sustainable food systems, focusing on optimizing the value chain through innovations in sourcing, packaging, processing and distribution. The survey encompassed 5,000 online interviews across various countries including Brazil, China, Germany, India, Kenya, South Korea and the USA. Global pledges by wealthy nations to assist poorer and more vulnerable countries in adapting to climate change have fallen significantly behind, a UN report has shown. With rich countries initially committing to providing $100 billion annually in climate finance to support developing nations in 2009, these funds were meant to aid in reducing greenhouse gas emissions and tackling the impact of climate change. However, the shortfall in financing specifically for adaptation efforts has ballooned to an estimated $194 to $366 billion annually, 
with only $25 billion directed towards this during 2017 to 2021. This significant gap reported by the UNEP is a central issue that will be discussed at the upcoming COP28 negotiations in Dubai. UN Secretary-General Antonio Guterres has emphasised the urgency, citing that despite increasing needs, global action has stalled. Researchers warn of the necessity for ambitious action in the current decade to prevent further losses and damage caused by climate change, as inadequate funding could exacerbate these challenges even further. The report's findings underscore the pressing need for more substantial and immediate support for adaptation measures to mitigate the intensifying impacts of climate change. At the Innovation Forum Sustainable Landscapes and Quantities Conference in Amsterdam this week, I spoke with Joseph de Cruz, CEO of the Roundtable on Sustainable Palm Oil. We've been talking a lot about this morning about regulation. And do you think with the rise of due diligence regulation, is certification's importance coming back to the fore again? Yes, but I think we also need to then be looking at certification in a slightly different way. Traditionally, a lot of the certifications we worked with were developed very much on a voluntary basis by like-minded stakeholders within the industry. RSP is a great example of that. If certifications are going to continue to be relevant in a much more complex regulatory environment, I think we need to get much better at contextualizing and situating them as effective and credible responses to those regulatory requirements, as well as being responses to the expectations and demands coming in from a range of other stakeholders, whether it's consumers, whether it's brands, whether it's regulators, etc. So yes, but I think certification framed and developed and, and presented in a different way. I guess it still remains one of the most important tools in the box. I think it's a critical tool for us because a certification system, if it's developed and implemented rigorously, actually provides something that is comparable across different contexts and different operators. So that level of comparability of rigor in how we demonstrate sustainability credentials, I think will continue to be an important element in the future as well. We talked a lot about policy today as well. Mm. What for you are the keys to ensuring that new policy drives positive impact? Number one, I think we need to recognize, especially when you're working with complex global supply chains, that policy interventions don't determine outcomes, they influence outcomes. Global supply chains are extremely complex and very large creatures, therefore, no single policy intervention is going to be deterministic in terms of where an outcome goes. What does that mean? That means in the development of those policy interventions, the people working on them need to have a clear sense of the reality of those supply chains, which means having to talk to the people in those supply chains, like-minded people who have the same intent, to figure out how an intervention in a particular part of the supply chain can steer the entire supply chain in the right direction. That's not always how it's done. Sometimes there's a perception of policy being deterministic. You can write rules for an industry. And the reality is that's not how outcomes actually end up happening. <coughs> policy in particular, impact on smallholder farmers is something we've talked about a lot today. Yes. What for you <coughs> are the types of policy that particularly can help smallholder farmers? I'll answer you in the negative to start off with, which is we have one example of the deforestation regulation we've been talking about quite a bit, where at first glance, it should not have a negative impact on smallholders because it doesn't explicitly mention excluding smallholders in any way. But the way in which the sector and the industry responds to that to minimize risk and ensure compliance does and is demonstrating an exclusion of smallholders. So that's a negative approach. On the positive, I think the most important element here is writing policy that is deliberately inclusive. Even if your mandate and your objective is around, say, environmental considerations, deforestation, climate change, understanding how to design policy interventions that support smallholders, 
forgive the cliche, but from the bottom up to change practices, I think is much more powerful than attempting to direct change from the top down through market or trade regulation. Obviously, it's mm. been really big here with the EUDR coming in and other, other aspects, other regulations. What do you hope to see in the coming years through to the end of 2024? I see a period of quite complex change. The EUDR will necessarily require a lot of effort by companies, organizations like ours and others, to put in place systems and structures to demonstrate compliance. The process by which companies do that is likely to shift supply chains, supply channels quite dramatically, which means, again, you may see a marked difference in demand and supply in marginal areas like from smallholders. I think and I hope this is also a really good example and perhaps a wake-up call for both regulators and industry to recognize that those of us who have a shared intent on sustainability, on de dealing with deforestation, climate, or indeed on labor and other regulations, need to forge a different way of working together to align the power and the effect of regulation and the good intent of the industry in the same direction, rather than seeing these almost as competing forces. It does feel like there's a lot of good intent around. It's a question of focusing <coughs> that good intent, I think, to see through the next 14 months or so. For now, JD from RSPO, thank you very much. Thank you. The Tropical Forest Alliance has just released a report on corporate action at scale on sustainable land use. To find out more about the research conclusions, I spoke with TFA's Jack Hurd and PepsiCo's Emily Coonan. Jack, perhaps you can kick us off. Can you outline briefly what we mean by landscape and jurisdictional approaches and the overlap in the terms? Yeah, right. Sometimes the terminology can get a little exciting here. This is basically an issue about scale. Scale implies something that's bigger than just site level action. So something, a site would be a farm, a plantation, a concession, or something like that. A landscape or a jurisdiction is bigger than that. And it often implies a multi-use purpose. So there's lots of things happening within a landscape or a jurisdiction. Some of land is devoted to protection. Some of land is devoted to production. Some of land is devoted to restoration. But the idea that there's lots of different things happening within a landscape or a jurisdiction. As such, it requires a multi-stakeholder collaboration process in order to bring about some changes in how that landscape or jurisdiction is managed and generally positive in a direction of enhanced forest cover or enhanced ecosystem function. The final point is a distinction between a jurisdiction and a landscape. Jurisdiction really implies a political administrative boundary, so a much more defined set of parameters that brings in the role of government in a much more formal way. This has some benefits in the sense that government is much more formally involved in land use planning and financing and rules and regulations around what happens. It also has a benefit at some points and in some locations when it comes to issues around CO2 and carbon credits. But that's basically the issue, scale and a multi-stakeholder collaboration process. Let's think a bit about your new report. What are its key findings? A couple of really interesting things have come out of this report. I think number one is just the general enthusiasm and amount of interest from what we often call the downstream or the midstream actors in a supply chain. Consumer-facing companies, as well as those who trade into consumer-facing companies, increasingly interested and active in getting engaged in landscape and jurisdictional activities. And so that means operating a little bit outside of their immediate supply chain, but also making investments in the contextual factors that influence what happens within their supply chain. A related point is that momentum is really building around this. 
there's been a fourfold increase in the number of companies that are reporting into the CDP around their commitments on landscape scale and jurisdictional scale investments. So there's a lot of enthusiasm around this. This approach, as mentioned at the outset, is really about addressing issues of scale, and scale really matters. When it comes to managing an immediate supply chain, that's generally taken on as a risk mitigation strategy. So companies want to make sure that they are mitigating the risks associated with their immediate supply chains. By investing in the landscapes and jurisdictions, you're investing in the contextual factors that help shape what that supply chain looks like. That can have a long-term benefit in that it changes the overall factors that influence what happens within that supply chain, as well as managing for resilience as it allows flexibility in the supply chain. This latter point is increasingly important when there's small holders involved so smallholders being farms that are two, three, four, five hectares rather than large integrated plantations. The last thing that came out of this is some of the rationale for these investments. One is that by multiple companies getting involved and having different actors involved, you're generating benefits that are at this scale that are greater than what a single investor or a single company could do. I think there's also a reputational benefits, often what's referred to as a social license to operate that comes through investments in landscapes and jurisdictional scale approaches. Other actors in that landscape or jurisdiction have a very positive view of the company and the company's willingness to really engage in addressing some of the underlying issues. There is an enhancement or an increased ability to ensure compliance with commitments. This goes back to issues with smallholders as well. There's an ability to enhance resilience, I guess, in the supply chain. I think the, the final thing that I think is really fascinating about this is that it allows companies to wrap their arms around a bigger set of challenges they're being confronted with right now. So in the past, we've talked a lot about climate issues, and we've talked about water issues, and we've talked about forest issues and biodiversity issues, and investing at a larger scale in a more comprehensive approach at a jurisdictional or landscape level can really help achieve multiple goals that a company may have. What did the report throw up that surprised you? couple things that run in different directions. One is that smaller companies are investing with an eye towards not just mitigating risk in their supply chain, something they can do probably relatively easily, but they're maybe more interested in also creating a broader impact in the landscape or in the jurisdiction in which they're investing. And this is important because it's easier to clean a supply chain than it is to have an impact at the level that really matters. And seeing smaller companies step into this space in a way that maybe is over and above what would be actually required from a compliance perspective or from a regulatory perspective is a really good sign. Now, something that runs a little bit contrary to that is that the recent deforestation regulation of the European Union seems to be incentivizing companies to focus more narrowly on their own supply chains as a risk management strategy, rather than stepping back and figuring out how do we not only do that, but also address the contextual factors that are playing out in a landscape or jurisdiction. So those are two things, the engagement of the smaller companies, but also the unintended impact of the European Union's deforestation regulation. It strikes me that there's been a real focus from business on thinking about climate impacts, mitigating them, alongside dealing with issues such as deforestation and natural conversion. It does seem like companies are beginning to think about broader impacts on biodiversity and water use as well now. How can a landscape approach help here? These issues are so intertwined, it's really hard to look at them as individual issues. There's a lot of energy around climate. There is no net zero climate future without addressing nature. 
And that's often because forestry and land use is about 23, 24, 25% of CO2 emissions globally. So there's a need to address the issue around nature and forestry and land use as part of a climate solution. There's no dealing with nature without dealing with commodity-driven deforestation. So we know that in key areas, specifically in the tropics, the main driver of deforestation and ecosystem conversion is the expansion of agricultural commodities. And there are a specific number of those agricultural commodities that have a disproportionate impact on forests and on ecosystems in the tropics. So that's palm and soy and cattle and coffee, cacao. These are the big drivers. So we have to figure out what are the creative ways at addressing the supply chains associated with these big commodities. Experience tells us that we can't deal with this at a site-based level. We can't just think about an individual supply chain or what's happening at an individual farm level. But we have to think about the broader scale in which that farm or that production site sits. What companies are finding here is that if they can step back and maybe try to break out of the silos that we maybe inadvertently set up, around biodiversity, nature, water, climate, et cetera, and step back and look at the broader issue, a landscape level initiative can really help address all of those things at once. For example, if you've got a landscape of a couple hundred thousand hectares in the tropics, success is largely defined by something that would say, okay, there's X amount of hectares that are about protection. There's Y amount of hectares that are about production. There's Z amount of hectares that are about restoration. By having a comprehensive approach to addressing things in that landscape, you're able to address climate goals, nature goals, biodiversity goals, water goals, inclusivity goals, smallholder livelihood goals, et cetera. So there's a lot of rationale here for really trying to step back and invest in these things in one sort of more integrated approach. And then how do you characterize the shift in corporate attitudes to these landscape and jurisdictional approaches? you got to give a lot of companies credit for looking at this and recognizing that just cleaning up your own individual supply chain, it may solve a specific and near-term challenge for the company, but it doesn't address the bigger challenge. Those are challenges that could be posed to the supply chain in the future. It's challenges to reputation. It's challenges to financial or other risks. That's been the big shift is no individual company can do this alone but we need to be thinking at a broader scale. We need to be able to crowd in the other actors in a landscape or a jurisdiction, whether it's government, civil society, organizations, indigenous people, local communities, et cetera. The second shift is the interlinkage between climate and nature. This is a big change that's happening. And you can see this both in corporate thinking and behavior. And Emily's much better place than I to comment on this. But also you see it changing out in the policy environment that often incentivizes things that play out in the landscape natural ecosystems and their conservation and protection is a critical part of the climate challenge. And I think that that's a separate shift that we've seen in the corporate attitude. Emily, I'd like to bring you in here. Thanks for your patience, particularly thinking of your work through the Consumer Goods Forum's Forest Positive Coalition. How have you seen companies thinking evolve around landscape approach in supply chains and sourcing policy? Jack has hit on a lot of these key points, but I would really characterize the evolution in corporate thinking in this space in three phases. First, the evolution that we saw was that although we've been making a lot of positive work happen to progress on no deforestation in individual supply chains over the past 10 to 15 years, 
we continue to see deforestation happening outside of those supply chains. And I think that first phase is the recognition that as companies, we can come together and make change much broader, much more impactful when we combine those supply chain focused actions with broader sustainable landscape transformation. So from there, a lot of companies, including PepsiCo, including other companies in the CGF Forest Positive Coalition, have really started taking that landscape level action. And so I think the second evolution that we're seeing is that this concept has really become the norm, at least within the ingredients that the TFA report has highlighted. As you've seen, Ian, in your conferences on this topic over the many years, we used to have to introduce what is a landscape approach? Why would you do it? I think now the concept has really become a norm. And it's widely understood that these approaches have to be a part of a sustainable supply chain strategy. Just an example to bring this to life, at PepsiCo, we've been working directly with our suppliers for many years on ending deforestation in in our palm oil supply chains, um, ending biodiversity loss, inclusion of smallholders. But we stepped back and looked at, okay, how do we address this in the broader context? And we worked in collaboration with Listari Capital, with Nestle, Procter & Gamble, and Unilever to help establish the RIMBA Collective, which is a first-of-its-kind private sector-enabled long-term sustainable financing to support conservation and restoration of forests in those landscapes where our ingredients are coming from. So over the course of this RIMBA Collective, We'll aim to deliver a billion dollars in forest conservation and restoration for over 500,000 hectares. This is what's necessary to get to deforestation-free supply chains, but what we wouldn't be able to achieve by just working strictly with those actors in our supply chains. Now, the third phase is about how do we make it not just the norm of one of the activities that companies take, but how do we really mainstream the landscape approaches within sustainability strategies? This is in terms of investments that companies make, how landscape approaches work together with different sustainability tools like certifications, sourcing policies, issue specific programs, and how these are also recognized in how companies set targets and the frameworks that we report against. It's a very interesting time to see how this third phase will play out. It's an important moment for us as an industry to be careful not to head in a direction where landscape approaches are just seen as something that you do beyond the value chain or on the side, but really how they become part of an integrated holistic sustainability strategy. How are the drivers changing then? How are the drivers shifting to enable the third phase of the report you mentioned? A lot of the drivers do come from within companies because of that direct experience that companies have working both within their own supply chains and the direct experience they're getting by doing landscape approaches themselves. We've also seen drivers from the catalyzing action of industry coalitions who've really activated their collective membership to take landscape approaches and to exchange the lessons learned from that, build tools and resources that can enable their members to take that action. And then I think third and more recently, we're starting to see more recognition of the role of landscape approaches by leading target setting and reporting frameworks, which TFA calls out really nicely in their report. So for example, CDP, Forest 500, the science-based targets for nature's land targets, and the TNFD. What about stakeholders? How are the expectations shifting, do you think? There's many different stakeholders in this space, and I think we're really seeing similar evolution in thinking amongst those stakeholder groups as what I described companies going through. 
critically, that recognition that supply chain focused solutions alone don't solve the challenges at hand. And then recognizing that some action needs to be taken with landscape approaches. And now that early thinking about the role that companies play in these approaches and the role that landscape approaches play in that overall company sustainability strategy. We're seeing pretty broad consensus by stakeholders in this space that landscape approaches are a key strategy or tool that companies need to be deploying. We haven't quite seen yet, or when you look at how companies are ultimately evaluated and incentivized for sustainability, there's not quite a match up there yet. It's still very much focused on companies' own physical supply chain, getting that traceability, verification, certification, reporting on KPIs on own volume. That's where stakeholders wrestling in this space figure out how do we strike a better balance and looking at the incorporation of both own supply chain strategies and landscape approaches together. Jack, to go through this with a new report, what are the standout conclusions from the report for you? I thought that the report did a great job of chronicling the history of landscape approaches in company action and laying out what action is being taken today. What stood out to me is that there's been a lot of great progress, and it's also still early days for the industry using landscape approaches, but that momentum is there and there's a lot of great examples to point towards. I think the report made it really clear that we need to focus on scaling this action. And to do so, there's a need to make a business case for all different types of companies. So not just the biggest companies or not just companies working in their biggest ingredients, but all across the different types of companies, different companies with different ingredients, different sizes of companies, and that there's a need to enable and drive collaboration um, to make that happen. The report makes recommendations for different types of organizations at the end to achieve that scale and that impact. I think there are three key opportunities for really transformational change that stood out to me in those recommendations. First was opportunity for target setting and reporting framework organizations to really accelerate and scale company action based on the learnings that we're seeing from real work on the ground and to incentivize and recognize landscape approaches in how companies set targets and report on progress for nature, climate, and people-related goals. Um, The second opportunity was highlighted that I thought stood out was for industry coalitions to really activate their members, including, as I was talking about, clarifying the roles of smaller players, smaller buyers, and varying ingredients, for example, And I think there's great examples of industry coalitions doing this that can be pointed to. And then the third is, I know that here we're talking about from the perspective of company action for landscape approaches, but we can't lose sight of the fact that landscape approaches ultimately need to be led by local stakeholders. The third opportunity that stands out is really for on-the-ground organizations who are working on sustainable land use planning in these production landscapes to seek global company support for sustainable land use planning. And I know that's, that's easier said than done, but I think there's a great opportunity to really make the connections between local organizations and companies, which again is another role that industry coalitions I think can play in that as well. Let's just talk about the collaboration point. Everyone talks about the need for collaboration. Do you have any examples you can give of this working in practice at scale? Perhaps you could touch on what the CGF's Forest Positive Coalition can do in helping drive this forward. Creating change with multi-stakeholder collaboration, it takes time. It can be very complex. 
But I think it's ultimately key if we want to create systemic and sustained change in production landscapes. I guess I'll start with the work at PepsiCo that we've been doing in collaboration on these approaches for many years now. Um, I already spoke about the partnership we have with peer companies, the Rimba Collective, which aims to protect and restore 500,000 hectares of forests in Southeast Asia. Another initiative I would point to is in Sumatra, where PepsiCo has been working with several other companies, as well as local government, international organizations, to promote sustainable land use planning. That's really done in a way that's inclusive of sustainable livelihoods and forest protection. And so there's a number of examples of activities within that program that one company on their own couldn't do. We have to do in collaboration. So for example, we've set up a state-of-the-art monitoring system for forests and made that available free of charge to local stakeholders to act on. We've been working on improving sustainability of palm oil by putting in place seven full-time village coordinators to work across 15 different communities on sustainable land use topics. And then engaged in that process, more than 50 palm oil mills. So we can really see the industry transforming in that landscape, but in a way that's inclusive of and promoting sustainable livelihoods and conservation and sustainable production altogether. I think there's many more examples from members of the CGF Forest Positive Coalition that we could point to. All of these examples are work in progress, but they show that together with this collective and coordinated action, we, it leads to more efficient use of resources, better activation of stakeholders beyond the individual companies involved in those longer term sustained impacts beyond what could take place through just a single ingredient or a single supply chain led action. You asked about the role of the CGF Forest Positive Coalition, and and maybe just a step back for those who aren't familiar. This is a CEO-led initiative that's made up of more than 21 different consumer goods forum companies. And it's been working for the last three years to mobilize those different companies to move beyond just working in our own supply chains to also building multi-stakeholder partnerships and engagements to both remove forest degradation and conversion from key commodity supply chains, but as well to build resilience of communities and ecosystems in landscapes where we source from for achieving those forest positive outcomes. I think when the coalition started, it was really clear that the focus has to be on having real impact on the ground. And one way the coalition is doing that is through a landscape working group. And that working group today has a portfolio of 25 different landscape initiatives, the majority of which are being supported by multiple Forest Positive Coalition member companies. Many different interesting projects are underway. The value in this coalition effort is, one, that collective action and that um, aggregate impact, but also that through that portfolio of initiatives, there's been a great opportunity to exchange learnings among the companies and then identify common challenges or where we need to develop solutions and resources to enable greater company action. So for example, we've worked together on a common reporting framework for landscape initiatives that enable the companies to communicate on action we're taking and also better enables different activities in a single landscape to work together towards a common goal. And so I think these coalitions are really a good opportunity to define good practice activate their members, create common reference through guidance and frameworks that are really grounded in on-the-ground experience. Strikes me from both your comments, Emily, and yours, Jack, there's a real sense of growing momentum. You mentioned that specifically, Jack. 
What are the key next steps to ensure that the opportunities that are now here are not missed? Jack? I really like what Emily was saying about landscape level initiatives really need to be led by, driven by what's happening with local stakeholders. We cannot expect companies to solve all the challenges that exist in complex integrated land use landscapes and jurisdictions around the world. The opportunity that's presenting itself is picking up on the momentum that companies are creating and using that to sort of crowd in the interests and the investment of local government in particular, but also other civil society players who may not currently be active in that landscape. These things really require, you know, as we've said, a, a multi-stakeholder process and it requires an organization that's able to step out of its own more parochial interest. I'm using that term specifically not because it's a pejorative, looking outside of their own interests and trying to find ways to address what's going to be beneficial at the broader scale. We should be able to take advantage of this momentum by trying to forge those partnerships and specifically getting government involved. Government has a role to play in land use planning and management and in the setting up the rules, the regulations, and providing extension services for farmers and things like that. So I think we want to take advantage of the opportunity by really trying to bring in other stakeholders into these processes. Emily, what's your view on the key next steps that ensure the opportunities are not missed? I think you're right about the growing momentum and the need to act with urgency to do this work now. I think there's three things I would point to. First is that the need to grow on the ground capacity to develop and implement landscape approaches. Coming back to this point that it has to be locally led, locally driven, in the end, it has to be a bottom-up approach. We hear from our partners that the on-the-ground capacity to do this work is one of the limiting factors at the moment. The second thing I would point to is really breaking barriers for companies to consider landscape approaches as part of their core climate, nature, and people strategies, again, through how this is recognized in accounting frameworks and reporting frameworks and scorecards. And then third is needing to build that critical mass of companies taking landscape level action and breaking the barriers for companies and different initiatives to collaborate and complement one another. All of this requires incentives to be aligned to ensure that there's right progress going forward. Perhaps you can both comment on that just to conclude. So Jack, what's your view on how the incentives for all the different people involved are best aligned to ensure that we get the progress that we've been talking about? There's a couple of different types of incentives here. There's financial incentives, there's recognition incentives, policy incentives and things like that. I happen to be a big fan of a collaborative approach that lays out what are the overall goals the group envisions within a landscape and jurisdiction. Investing in a planning process that could result in something that says, hey, look, within this landscape or jurisdiction, these are the lands that we really want to use for production. These are the lands we want to use for protection. These are the lands that need to be restored. This is the mechanism by which we're going to make decisions over this. This is who feeds into that process, et cetera. The existence of a comprehensive approach or a plan at the landscape at jurisdictional level provides some notion of assuredness and some notion of joint buy-in to the fact that everyone's sort of going in the same direction. That will then start to create incentives that align the interests of the various parties. Emily, same question to you. How do you think incentives can be best aligned? I would really emphasize the need for having the right target setting scorecard and reporting frameworks in place that help set out the requirements around corporate climate 
nature and people goals to incentivize companies taking landscape approaches. At PepsiCo, we often talk about the risk of hitting the goal and missing the point. That's where we are. I think why we're emphasizing the need for frameworks to recognize landscape approaches, because as we've said a number of times already, we've already seen for complex issues like deforestation, focusing on supply chain solutions alone can lead to actions that do exactly that, hitting the goal, but missing the point. And we've been through that journey already. And so I think we already know that it's important to incentivize landscape approaches to be more of an integral part of company sustainability strategies, not instead of supply chain focused action, but really alongside supply chain focused action so that we can ultimately have the intended impact, that that impact be sustained and that it work for people, planet and food systems. But a very comprehensive discussion on all of these issues, and certainly it's going to be interesting to see how things develop as we go forward. But for now, Jack Hurd from TFA and Emily Cunin from PepsiCo, thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much for your time. Yeah, thanks. The Innovation Forum website is, as ever, the place to go for all the usual analysis and interviews. And do look out for more insights from our autumn events over the coming weeks. We'll be back with the Monday Briefing next week and the podcast on Thursday, when I will be in Washington, D.C. with the Innovation Forum team for our Future of Climate Action conference. But that's it for now. I've been Ian Welsh, and until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.